Hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein, energy philosopher and author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And I wanted to share with you a lot of interesting testimony and Q&A uh, I did at Congress today, specifically in front of the House Natural Resources Committee. So before I get into the testimony, uh, I want to share with you the background of this. Uh, there's a representative named Katie Porter, who is actually a representative very near where I live in Orange County, California, who likes to make a habit of, let's just say, humiliating prominent people and then posting the gotcha moments on Twitter. So, for example, here on the screen, you know, she's posting two years ago today, JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon couldn't tell me or the American people how a single mom working as a teller at his bank was supposed to make ends meet. I wonder if he's had enough time to think of some answers by now. So what does this have to do with me? Well, uh, a little while ago, Katie Porter invited some oil and gas executives to testify at a hearing. And the way it was billed, so here's one of the invitations, this is to uh, Richard Moncrief, the president and CEO of Devon uh, Energy, and he was invited along with the CEOs of, um, of ExxonMobil and EOG Resources. And it's, you know, a friendly invitation. I'm pleased to invite you to testify before the subcommittee, da da da, da. Um, And let's see, what does it say? A virtual hearing to examine the contributions of the oil and gas sector to jobs in the economy and the role the federal government plays in those contributions. Well, that sounds pretty innocent, unless you know anything about Katie Porter's track record and her views on these issues. And sure, sure enough, if you look at what the actual subject of the hearing was, it's called misuse of taxpayer dollars and corporate welfare in the oil and gas industry. So this seems like it's going to be something that's very hostile to the industry. Plus, it's somebody who can be expected to be very hostile and do all sorts of gotcha moments. And if I were a CEO in the oil and gas industry and had a lot of other stuff going on, and I wasn't a professional communicator on these issues, I would probably avoid this kind of hearing myself, particularly because it's clearly framed from their perspective, and at least certainly from my perspective, in a very biased way. That is, the whole thing is just like, let's find something wrong with the oil and gas industry and ignore all the ways in which it benefits Americans and humanity, and also all the ways in which the government punishes it and holds it back. So these CEOs refused, which was good news for me, because I was invited and I knew the game but I'm totally happy to play this game and I'm totally happy to participate because I am a professional communicator and a professional expert on these issues. And I certainly would welcome anybody who wants to try to have a gotcha moment uh, with me. And more broadly, I welcome the opportunity to testify and to answer questions. So I got this same invite that says, hey, we're gonna examine the contributions of the oil and gas sector to jobs in the economy. Okay, great. so I, I know what's going on, but I'm curious are they going to try to do a gotcha on me, or are they just going to ignore me as much as possible? To be clear, it's the Republican side that actually invited me, not Katie Porter's side. So I was kind of curious, and especially because if anyone knows my history testifying in front of Congress, there was this incident where another politician who likes to have gotcha moments, Senator Barbara Boxer, tried to go after me, and it, it did not go very well for her. Mr. Epstein, are you a scientist? No. Philosopher. You're a philosopher? Yes. Okay. Well, this is the Environment and Public Works Committee. I think it's interesting we have a philosopher here talking about an issue. It's to teach you how to think more clearly. Well, you don't have to teach me how to think more clearly. So when I had that exchange with Barbara Boxer, you know, some of the staff were laughing at her. At the end, she said, I went after her a couple of times. I mean, I think very objectively in terms of how she wasn't thinking clearly. And at the end, she said this was a day she would never uh, forget. And so I was wondering, okay, are people gonna go after me? And I sort of wanted to, I didn't wanna publicize that I was having this hearing because I didn't want people to look into me and to decide, yeah, let's not go after that guy. That's not in our interest, that's too big a risk. Uh, but then uh, an NBC reporter uh, somehow got a leak of my testimony, which you have to submit in advance. And he gave some accurate uh, quotes, but then I thought, okay, the cat's out of the bag. But I still wanted to keep kind of low profile because I didn't wanna get them. Uh, prepared for me. So I decided, okay, I'm going to give my written statement. Um, whether or not they try to go after me, uh, it'll be a good opportunity to talk. 
uh, to answer questions. And so if you watch my statement, I want you to notice two things. So one is that I was able to, I think, completely reframe the whole discussion. The, I think the whole thing was set up in a very biased way. And I think I was able to counter that and to shape much of the hearing from that point on. And I think it is notable uh, that Katie Porter was the model of politeness. She did not at all try to gotcha me. She didn't say anything to me, uh, but she did actually defend me when one of her colleagues uh, went after me, not with any content, but criticized me for being a hipster and described me as having funding that is not true and ignoring everything, single thing that I said. And his most powerful argument was that I was wearing a t-shirt instead of a suit, which um, I think I, it looks fine in a t-shirt. And there were other people who were even less uh, dressed up than I was, but it was not my intention to just be in this t-shirt. It was my intention to have this jacket, but the thing took a while to get started. And then I, I just forgot about it. And so I didn't wear one. And then after the guy went after me, of course, I can't wear the I can't put on the jacket uh, after that. So next time I testify, I will remember the jacket, uh, but we'll see if I get invited to testify. I imagine I'll be invited, uh, but I don't know how often I'll be engaged. The question is, will anyone actually try to refute me directly or will they just keep trying to pretend that I don't exist? So thank you for all the Congress people who did ask me questions. I was glad to get to talk a lot during the hearing. I hope you really enjoy the testimony and the Q&A. And then afterward, as you'll see, one of the representatives, Lauren Boebert, she asked me a few questions during her five minutes, but then she wanted to ask more. So we ended up having a very long Q&A at the end, which I shared at the end. So without further ado, enjoy the testimony. And to read it, go to energytalkingpoints.com. The chair now recognizes Mr. Alex Epstein for his testimony. Thank you for inviting me to testify. I want to begin by challenging the basic assumption of this hearing, which is that the U.S. government is harming Americans and the world by giving unjust preferences to the highly destructive oil and gas industry. I believe this is 100% wrong. I will make the case that the U.S. government is actually harming America and the world by giving unjust punishments to the incredibly life-giving oil and gas industry. If we can liberate this industry, America and the world will be far better places to live. What has led me to the conclusion that the oil and gas industry is life-giving and persecuted? It is not any financial relationship with the industry. I came to all my views before I even knew anyone from that industry. My conclusion came from my background as a philosopher. As a philosopher, I believe passionately in objective thinking methods. One crucial thinking method is full impact thinking. This means that when we are evaluating an industry like oil and gas or solar, we look carefully at the full impact positive and negative of that industry. When I decided to look at the full impact of the oil and gas industry myself, without the bias of most media and politicians, I found that the positive impacts far, far outweighed the negative impacts and will continue to do so for generations to come. What are the positives of the oil and gas industry? Along with the coal industry, the other part of the fossil fuel industry, they are the only industry that can in the near future produce the low-cost, reliable energy that 8 billion people need to survive and flourish, to live to their highest potential. Unreliable solar and wind can't come close to fossil fuels. That's why globally, fossil fuel use is four times all other energy use combined, and why oil, gas, and coal use is exploding in the developing world. How positive is the impact of an, indus of an industry that produces low-cost, reliable energy for billions of people? If you care about human life, nothing is more positive. Energy is the industry that powers every other industry. The lower cost energy is, the lower cost everything is. Low cost reliable energy produced by the fossil fuel industry has made humanity so productive that since 1980, the fraction of people living in extreme poverty, less than $2 a day, has gone from more than four in 10 to less than one in 10. Now, fossil fuel CO2 emissions have contributed to the warming of the last 170 years, but that warming has been mild and easily masterable, one degree Celsius, mostly in the colder parts of the world. And life on Earth thrived when CO2 levels were more than five times today. today's. Fossil fuels have actually made us far safer from climate 
by providing low-cost energy for the amazing machines that protect us against storms, protect us against extreme temperatures, and alleviate drought. That's why the rate of climate-related disaster deaths, deaths from extreme temperatures, droughts, wildfires, storms, and floods, has decreased by 98% over the last century. The global leader of the life-giving fossil fuel industry is the highly innovative U.S. oil and gas industry, which has helped billions of people climb out of poverty and can help billions more if our government stops unjustly punishing it. While the focus of this hearing is the alleged unfair preferences that the U.S. oil and gas industry gets, the full impact of our energy and environmental policies is to unjustly punish the oil and gas industry via numerous prohibitions on development, along with mandates and exorbitant subsidies for wind and solar. This administration and Congress promised to make the situation far worse by punishing the U.S. oil and gas industry to the point of trying to eliminate it, which would cause skyrocketing energy prices, which means the mass destruction of American industry and jobs. Punishing U.S. oil and gas even more than we already do will harm America and harm most of the world by preventing billions from having lower cost, more reliable energy. The only people it won't harm are the leaders of, of dictatorships that seek to overtake America, such as China. China has a clear strategy of running its economy on fossil fuels while encouraging others to run on inferior, unreliable solar and wind that is made using Chinese fossil fuels, which produce 85% of China's energy. In 2020, China added 38 gigawatts of coal plants and has 247 gigawatts, enough to power three Texases in development all designed to last 40 plus years. America is not being a leader by punishing our ultra productive oil and gas industry and rewarding the China-based unreliable solar and wind industry. We are being a sucker, a sucker whose economy and security will collapse. It's not too late to change course. If we liberate every energy industry, including oil, gas, coal, and nuclear, America can make the world a better place to live and continue being a prosperous and secure country for generations to come. Thank you. So we have a uh, the president of the United States who won't allow pipelines in our country, but uh, would, has uh, agreed to and supported um, pipelines in Russia. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's part of a broader trend where we forbid development domestically and then we liberated other places. So much of our production now is done in China instead of the U.S., which, as I mentioned, has lots of strategic disadvantages. So with the with this decision, we have lost uh, project labor agreements with workers, union workers in the United States, correct? Yes. Okay, thank you. Mr. Epstein, thank you for joining us today. I'm looking forward to your perspective. Reliable and affordable energy is a humanitarian issue. There are some people who have made environmentalism a religion. Rather than focus on solutions that can make lives better for people, some would prefer to vilify an industry that provides immeasurable benefits to people's livelihood and the function of modern day society. You've thought deeply about these issues. Is the oil and gas industry evil? No, I think it's a, a highly moral industry. And the, the perspective I wanna really reinforce today is we live in an energy starved world. Billions of people have very little energy. 800 million people have no electricity at all. 2.6 billion people are using wood and animal dung. The U.S. oil and gas industry is uniquely positioned to provide low-cost, reliable energy for us and for the world. And the fact that we're focused on demonizing them and really trying to outlaw it in this country, I think is deeply immoral. So how do some of the oil and gas companies, actually most of them, contribute to the local communities? I'm, I'm from Western Wyoming, so I'm very aware of a lot of these, these uh, uh, mechanisms of contribution. Can you, can you describe some of those? I mean, I, I think the biggest one is how they contribute to all communities by giving low-cost, reliable energy. So oil and gas jobs support every job. But if you want to talk locally, yeah, there are these enormous opportunities for productive employment. And I've met over the years, I didn't know anyone in the industry when I got started, but I've met tens of thousands over the years. They're incredibly proud of the work. Uh, I don't think Mr. Smith's testimony represents the average worker at all. I think if most of them were here, they would really rebel against a lot of the things that are being said about them and their work and their conditions. And so I think it's a very admirable industry for the most part. Of course, there are bad apples and that kind of thing, uh, but people are really grateful for the amazing productive opportunities to do meaningful work that benefits the whole world. So you also in your testimony highlight how oil and gas has led to advancements in other industries. Now, as a doctor, I'm particularly interested in the field of healthcare. 
Can you describe how reliable, affordable, and plentiful energy impacts that care doctors are able to provide and the products it creates to extend our lives? Yeah, I think there are three big categories here, so I'll say them quickly. The most underrated is time. Because we have low-cost, reliable energy powering agriculture, that frees up time for people to become physicians. We couldn't have millions of people fighting the COVID-19 pandemic without all the time freed up by fossil fuel machines. And there is no viable replacement for fossil fuels in the realm of agriculture doing what they do today, so that's one. Another is just all of the modern machines that make up modern medicine. Energy is machine food. The lower cost and more reliable energy is, the lower cost it is to use machines to save all kinds of lives. And then the final one is petroleum products. When people talk about keep it in the ground or strict drilling, they're not thinking about the fact that oil and gas are the raw material of thousands of valuable products in our civilization, including just about every product in a hospital. So oil and gas saves lives in so many ways. And the fact that we only look at the negative impacts and not the positives is exactly like only looking at the negative impacts of a COVID-19 vaccine and not the positives. Yeah, so you bring up a good point. So, you know, the other side looks at globalism, you know, this environmental movement globally. So it mm -hmm. makes more sense to me, at least, and for some from the folks I, I uh, come from, that uh, we produce it cleaner, uh, more efficiently um, than anybody else in the world. And so that geopolitical application, if you're an environmentalist, you would you want more American uh, clean oil and gas out there versus Russian dirty or Chinese dirty gas, you know, because it 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 gets back to the narrative of uh, enhancing our environment. Can you address that as well? So it is definitely true that American oil and gas, American coal, uh, have fewer negative environmental impacts than those of other countries. So there's this question of why are we so focused on stopping things here that we know full well, if we think about it, will lead to more dirtier fuel use overseas. And I think the reason is because we don't really value energy. We take for granted that we have low cost, reliable energy. We ignore the fact that billions of people need it around the world. And so we're so maniacally focused on eliminating CO2 emissions at all costs that we've made it a religion where just to do something symbolic to reduce CO2 here, even if it doesn't do anything globally, is considered uh, moral. And I consider that immoral, to do something symbolic and to ignore the lives of billions of people, including millions of Americans who get harmed by these policies, I consider that immoral. Oh, I, you know, I, I, I applaud you. And, and even Michael Moore has actually uh, uh, recanted and seen Jesus in regards to the use of uh, the fossil fuels. You can't no. get to the Green Deal without having the use of fossil fuels. Go ahead. Just one quick comment on Michael Moore, because I think it's important. The whole modern environmental movement has unfortunately been hijacked by an anti-human perspective that says that all human impact is bad. And you look at Michael Moore's movie, what it shows is he's a, he points out, yes, solar and wind have all these impacts, but he's against them and fossil fuels and nuclear. And that's what you see happening in the U.S. We oppose fossil fuels. We oppose nuclear. Unfortunately, Democrats are the biggest opponents of nuclear. Oh, I apologize if I'm out of time. Yeah, so there's a big anti-energy movement that that oppose, is ultimately going to oppose solar and wind if they ever became cost effective, which they are far from. Thank you, Mr. Epstein. Thank you. Um, the chair now recognizes Mr. Huffman for five minutes. Thank you, uh, Ms. Uh, Madam Chair. And Mr. Epstein, the, the environmental perspective is not against energy. Uh, you're going to hear us defend uh, safe, clean, reliable, cost-effective energy replacements to fossil fuel over and over again. So please, uh, no more slight. The video advantage. is not working, Madam Chair. There we go. Sorry, so Madam I, Chair. I disagree with that. I'm happy to explain why if you want. Well, this the is my time, Mr. Will, yeah. My time the and the co-brothers are not paying Mr. me for it. This is just me. So, uh, Madam Chair, let me start by saying it's disappointing to see that industry representatives have declined to be here. They've got a lot to answer for, but it's not surprising that they are no-shows. Instead of owning up uh, to the damage of their pollution or maybe following the lead of their European counterparts and beginning an earnest transition to clean energy, the leading American oil and gas companies are doubling down on a planet-wrecking business plan. Instead of investing in clean energy, they're investing in PR just as they've done for decades, knowingly deceiving the public about climate science and about their role in causing and worsening the climate crisis. And today we got the fresh face 
of that disinformation campaign, a young, relatable philosophy guy in a T-shirt, no less, putting a hipster gloss on a thick layer of sophistry hatched in one of the Koch-funded institutes that pays him uh, to bestow the banner of morality, no less, on their industry. Look, this testimony is like telling Mrs. Lincoln that if she just looked at it the right way, that night at Ford's Theater wasn't so bad. The acting and the set design were splendid. And if Congress and the American people just looked at it the right way, if we put aside the fact that the industry is literally killing the planet, if we pretend that replacing oil and gas with clean, safe, cost-effective alternatives is somehow impossible, then continuing down this road to climate perdition is a great plan. Thank you. And I just want to remind my colleague, Mr. Huffman, to avoid commenting on the witness's appearance um, as a matter of decorum. And I appreciate your participation. And Mr. Epstein, in your written testimony, you, re you referenced a comprehensive analysis of federal subsidies per unit of electricity generated. In the last decade, you found that solar got 211 times more subsidies than natural gas. Wind received 48 times more subsidies than natural gas. Based on the less red herring argument that it's oil and gas that receives more uh, subsidies, uh, are the facts being distorted here? Yeah, I think the facts are being enormously distorted. I mean, any kind of claim that the oil and gas industry is getting preference over solar and wind is not even coming close to looking at the full impact of policy. You mentioned that study I referred to, that's by uh, Dr. Brent Bennett of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, but every study that looks at per unit subsidies comes to the same conclusion. I mean, and it should be very clear just from all the rhetoric around our government. Our government is talking explicitly about eliminating fossil fuels in the near future and replacing them with unreliable solar and wind. And so that agenda should be owned and we should be discussing, is this a good idea? And what are the consequences of that? Not pretending that solar and wind don't already have these massive special privileges and that there aren't innumerable obstacles to oil and gas development in the US. And uh, you know, President Biden has talked about, um, and in fact, not just talked about, he's taken actions uh, that have resulted in job losses, uh, loss funding for public education, uh, a general decrease in revenue generation, uh, affecting programs that provide funding for things like the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, the administration's targeting of the oil and gas industry uh, can also threaten our nation's independence and security. And I think you talked about this a little bit in your opening, but uh, can you uh, elaborate a little more or expand on how China stands to benefit from a weakened US uh, oil and gas industry? Absolutely. So one of the, the shocking misrepresentations of reality by the media and often by this administration and many in Congress is that China is, quote, eating our lunch on renewables, whereas in reality, China is 85 percent fossil fueled. The reason why all, almost all the solar panels are made in China and the raw materials are mined in China and crucially the raw materials are processed in China is because they have low cost fossil fuel electricity. Keep in mind the statistic, industrial electricity in China, and that's really the marker of how big an industrial economy you have, is five times that of the US. The so-called green energy that we're using is made using Chinese fossil fuels, as well as a lot of problematic labor practices. So for China, it's the best of all worlds if they want to reach dominance by 2049, which is an, ex an explicit goal of theirs, because they can use cheap fossil fuels to sell us unreliable cost-adding solar and wind and then gain a huge advantage. Your, your energy system determines your economy and it determines your security. World War I, World War II, we're all won by the side with the best energy. It's truly terrifying that we are destroying our energy system so that China can make more money selling us junk. Mr. Epstein, it's great to see you. And let me start by saying I loved your book, uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I also appreciate the talking points um, your website um, provides and, uh, and, and even the weekly discussion groups that you lead. I'm very grateful for that. Now, Mr. Epstein, advocates of eliminating fossil fuels claim that unreliability of solar and wind can be solved through large amounts of batteries. Is this true? 
Yeah, this is this is false. It has been promoted by Elon Musk, who says that all we need is solar plus some batteries. So I ran the numbers with Musk's own conservative battery prices, three hundred dollars a kilowatt hour, and have just three days of storage. You would need, um, you know, hundreds at four hundred trillion dollars, which is four and a half times global GDP. So this is a complete fantasy that's justifying disastrous economic policies at home. And Musk and others should really explain themselves and really apologize. Thank you, Mr. Epstein. The Biden regime claims that green jobs will easily replace any oil and gas jobs that are lost. Is this true? In my written testimony, I explain why this is impossible. They're not nearly as productive. They're almost all based in China. And by raising the price of energy throughout all of America, they make every American job less competitive by making it expensive to do industry here and cheaper to do industry abroad. Thank you, Mr. Epstein. Our time is up. Um, I would love to follow up with you offline and ask you um, for further questions that I have of you, and I would be happy to post your responses. Sounds great. Thank you, Representative Bobert. Can you speak to why this is so important that we, you know, we leverage these resources and trust these companies um, instead of importing energy from abroad? Uh, thank you. So as I've tried to stress, energy is a fundamental human need. Energy is the fuel for our machines. And without machines, the world is a very deficient and dangerous place. We tend to think of the world as, oh, it's abundant and safe and the climate is nice. And then we just screw it up using fossil fuels. Nothing could be further from the truth. Absent low-cost, reliable energy, the world is a really bad place. It's a bad environment for humans. It, we struggle to survive. We struggle to eat. We struggle to protect ourselves from natural climate danger. We have dirty water. It's fossil fuels that have made us unnaturally safe from climate. Our ancestors were devastated all the time by climate. Fossil fuels provide us clean water. So when we're talking about energy and environment, we have to recognize that energy makes our environment good. And the only low-cost, reliable, global, scalable, globally scalable form of energy is fossil fuels. So if we don't do it here, what we're like, you know, Biden wants to ban a pipeline and stop drilling for the near future. That just means we're importing it from other from other places, which means energy is more expensive and has more negative environmental impact. Energy production on federal lands. Do you have any suggestions on how to best address this, um, particularly with respect to federal lands? Yeah, I mean, in general, the way you address this is by having property rights. And I think we should really question how much of the land is controlled uh, federally. C currently, federal land is glorified. You take this like 30 by 30 thing, which many people, I think many members of this call, uh, endorse. And so this is saying that even more of the land should be controlled by the government. But the federal government is the worst controller of land. If you take, I live in California, actually, in Orange County, where our Representative Porter is. The biggest environmental hazard in the United States is the federally and Gavin Newsom controlled California forests. Like we cannot manage forests at all. We let we let all kinds of debris. Uh, we, we basically turn our forests into bombs. And now we're talking about the federal government managing even more. So you either need to put stuff in private hands or you need very clear long term rules. You know, before President Trump, I think it took something like 250 days to get approval federally, whereas on a state level is often 30 days. This needs to drastically change. And unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction, making it more difficult to drill on federal lands. I'd like to actually uh, go to Mr. Um, Epstein for my questions. Um, Many of my Democratic colleagues have stated that green energy jobs can replace the loss of traditional energy jobs, like the 134,000 oil and gas jobs in my state. Many also say that we need to be transitioning to a completely carbon-free energy grid. Can you tell me the and the committee why both of those ideas are completely fantasy? Yeah, I mean, I would actually describe them as nightmare uh, ideas. And so the, the thing about green jobs. I mean, I think there are, there are three basic elements to it. So the first is they're not as productive as fossil fuel jobs. You take the average oil and gas extraction worker, they produce $2 million worth of value. That's why that industry pays really well. Solar and wind are generating unreliable energy that's a parasite on reliable forms of energy like coal, gas, nuclear, and hydro. So they're never going to be the same kind of job. Also, those jobs are overwhelmingly in China because that's where the mining, processing, and manufacturing is done. Just to take one example, mentioning Elon Musk, you know, his Tesla rooftop factory was supposed some great savior in Buffalo. 
in reality, as I show in my testimony, you know, that cost, that cost something like $700,000 a job. That is total welfare work. And then the other thing about these green jobs, and that relates to this idea of a carbon, you know, carbon neutral or whatever you want to call it, is when you make energy more expensive, you make everything more expensive. So what that does is that makes your industry uncompetitive, which has already started to happen, and is happening much, much more in Europe and Australia. The representative who insulted me, I forgot his name, but you know, called me a whatever, he called me like a, um, some, some modern insult. Uh, he's talking about Europe. Europe is a total disaster. They're shedding jobs all over the place because they have catastrophically high energy prices in places like Germany and Denmark that are only doing a fraction of the solar and wind adoption that this administration is talking about. Right. Yes, and I apologize for that because I believe the decorum on this committee should be one of respect to all of those that take time to be witnesses in front of the committee. Um, and with that, I have another question. What do you think Congress should be focused on when investing in infrastructure, especially in the energy infrastructure? Congress should be focused on liberating uh, infrastructure. So recently on, on Twitter, I posted about this. Uh, in the, key to infra the key to better infrastructure is liberating it from anti-development forces. We have so much of an anti-development movement on private lands and on public lands. And if you take something like highways, why is China building freeways four times faster than we are with the same number of, of vehicles on the road? It's because we have all these anti-development things. So we need things like NEPA reform. I think the Builder Act is a good start to that. But we need to be liberating infrastructure instead of creating this crazy $2.3 trillion slush fund uh, for any random welfare projects that people want, which is what President Biden is talking about. No, the key to infrastructure is liberating infrastructure from anti-development forces. Mr. Alex Epstein, it was so great to have you in the subcommittee on oversight and investigations uh, today as we held a hearing for the misuse of taxpayer dollars and corporate welfare in the oil and gas industry. Um, uh, today, it was uh, a virtual hearing and we were all so excited to hear your testimonies. Uh, there were some other witnesses who gave their testimonies as well, uh, you know, was listening into those and just how, um, how incorrect and how, uh, how much they aimed to uh, demonize the oil and gas industry in this subcommittee uh, hearing. Now, I'm proud to serve on the Natural Resource Committee, and the Oversight and Investigations Committee is, is not my subcommittee, uh, but they did allow me to join by unanimous consent uh, so I could ask you some questions. Our, our time was short in there, and so I, I wanted to give you an opportunity um, to just expound on your remarks and, and kind of give a summary of uh, what you told us all there in the hearing uh, so, so we could get this message out far and wide. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming. You know, it was really great that I got a lot of friendly questions. I was actually hoping for many more uh, unfriendly questions. I think one thing people might be interested in is just sort of the history of this hearing because it was originally initiated by Representative Katie Porter, who actually represents the district right next to me in Orange County. And it had a very public call out of the CEOs, I believe, of Devon Energy, ExxonMobil, and I forget the, oh, EOG Resources. And so it, it really came across as this is pitched to have a gotcha moment. Representative Porter, if you look at her Twitter, has numerous kind of gotcha videos. And so I didn't at all blame the executives for uh, not coming. I probably wouldn't have come if I were then, if I were them, but I was very eager to come because I would love her to try a gotcha moment with me. Barbara Boxer tried that several years ago, didn't go her way. And I, but so interestingly, I gave my testimony and I'll talk about that in a second. She did not have any questions or comments for me. She was super polite uh, the whole time. I don't think that would have been the case had I been an executive. Just one thing to say about the testimony here and what was going on. You know, the premise of this was we're really concerned that we're not getting enough royalty rates from oil and gas or this tax break or that tax break acting as if the whole administration and Congress isn't dead set on eliminating the oil and gas industry. If you look at something like federal leases, people are talking about, oh, we need 18.75%, not 12.5%. The real rate they want is 0%, because 0% is what you get when you ban something. So yeah. it, it, they're acting as if there's not this war on American oil and gas, American coal. And so what I wanted to do was bring the full context. I wanted to say, hey, look, 
this is the big picture. We're opposing this industry. We're treating it like it's a destroyer. And actually, this is an incredibly life-giving industry in the US and around the world. And I wanted to make set that as the context for this. And our focus should be not on how do we how do we cut the industry even more, but how do we liberate it? Interestingly, yeah. the um, the kind of opposition people, none of them dealt with that argument at all. The, the closest anyone came to dealing with me was, I think his name is Representative uh, Huffman from Northern California, where I actually used to live. And so he he was very hard on, well, he made up some claim about like, I'm funded by the Koch brothers, like made up something about that. I think it's because an organization I worked for 11 years ago once got 5% of one year's budget from them. This supposedly governs my life. Uh, now, which by the way, I love the Koch brothers. I would be proud to get money from them. I don't happen to have a financial relationship uh, with them. Certainly not right now. Uh, but yeah, this whole thing, he, so he had nothing to say. He just called me a hipster uh, and he criticized me for not having a jacket which by the way, that was an accident. I had my jacket next to me and I just forgot. But then once he insulted me, I figured I, I can't put it on now. Uh, so anyway, that was the whole context for the thing. And uh, I, I was really happy to get a lot of questions from the, from some of the friendly representatives, uh, including you. So thanks for taking the time to ask me some follow-ups. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's interesting that in a uh, committee hearing with representatives, uh, Katie Porter and Jared Huffman, you would be criticized uh, by not wearing a jacket uh, because I recall Katie Porter um, coming into uh, to a, a meeting wearing a Catwoman costume, and uh, and then in a in a natural resources committee, um, Jared Huffman actually um, fashioned a hat out of tinfoil to mock me, and uh, and then we have a. Uh, so some other folks, you know, like Representative Cohen, who eat Kentucky Fried Chicken on the House floor. So don't worry about uh, <laughs> them when they say don't wear a jacket because um, rules are for uh, for for thee and not for me when it comes to them. Um, but you know, it, it's it's really exciting to have someone who actually is an expert. I love your book, uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I love that you are out there on the front lines and uh, really communicating this message of American energy, American energy independence, and uh, pursuing energy dominance right here in America. Uh, it, it's so vital right now. We, we heard from witnesses who really demonized the oil and gas industry, um, talking about uh, just how difficult it is, how dangerous it is. And, and, and we know it's a high risk environment and that's why the wages are, are, uh, are, are so high and the employees are very well compensated. My husband has drilled for natural gas for 18 years. And uh, we, we had a gentleman on there who was um, complaining about working 13 and a half hour days. Um, that's pretty average in my household. That's actually a really good day. Uh, I'm a restaurant owner and I, I've worked more than hundred hours a week on average. And, and now as a sitting United States representative, um, I'm still working more than hundred hours a week. Uh, so, so to hear, you know, just the, the complaints of that and just um, the, the drudgery of it uh, was, was very disingenuous to me. Uh, you know, I, this is this is something that really helps families and helps communities. And I know that my family is a testament of the oil and gas industry providing opportunities for us. Um, my my husband came to Colorado with a with a trash bag full of clothes. He was homeless, and he started working on a natural gas drilling rig. And he's worked his way to the top, um, being a roughneck. And uh, you know, it's something that he's very proud of. And and we've seen a lot of other families be very successful too. And you know, one of the great things uh, with being uh, a roughneck on on an uh, oil or a natural gas drilling rig, uh, you know, when you have those rotational shifts, you can live anywhere you want. Um, you know, they work one week off, one week on, two weeks off, two weeks on. Uh, you're working six months out of the year. And so you have that flexibility to actually commute and, and be exactly where you want to raise your family. Um, and, you know, in, in Colorado, a lot of those folks chose to um, build their homes right there in Garfield County and in Mesa County where, uh, where the boom was taking place. But unfortunately, because of politics, the, that industry has really been regulated out. We are regulating ourselves into poverty um, rather than building new fire stations and new community colleges, new um, new local schools, uh, roads. Uh, we are just regulating ourselves and, into poverty. And so now we're seeing with the Biden administration and House Democrats, uh, they've really waged, like you said, an all-out war on traditional fuel sources and have endangered 10 million jobs supported by American oil and gas industry. Uh, these partisan hacks talk out of both sides of their mouth. And, and recently, 
Um, they even said that pipelines are the safest way to transport energy. And we've been saying that for, for quite some time now. In Colorado, we have the Jordan Cove pipeline that we would love to see uh, uh, built and, and completed so we can export our clean liquefied natural gas globally. Um, but yet when it comes to American jobs and American energy, these leftists have um, prohibited all oil and gas leasing on federal lands and killed important projects like the Keystone XL pipeline. But somehow just yesterday, it was okay for these not in my backyard extremists to waive sanctions uh, for Russian pipelines for Putin's buddies. And, uh, and that these, these hypocrites, uh, th these hypocritical policies and, uh, and, and their America last um, uh, agenda um, it's something that the Democrats support. And so now, now with that, just go, going back to this, this gentleman who testified uh, quickly before I ask you a couple of questions, you know, it's interesting. He was talking about just the extreme weather temperatures that he uh, faced in, uh, in North Dakota and that he was not provided with, uh, with warm clothing to, to be able to withstand those cold temperatures. Um, now, I know that roughnecks are provided with um, PPE. They have, they're provided with their, uh, with their hard hats and with safety um, glasses and with gloves, um, but you're going to buy your steel toe boots and you're going to buy your coat. Uh, so I, I was just thinking about the 40,000 children who are not provided with PPE and uh, certainly not provided with shoes or clothing for the job, but yet uh, they are mining in the Congo with their bare hands. They're not even provided the tools, the shovels to mine uh, for cobalt in the Congo. And it's because of our policies that are incentivizing uh, this child and slave labor in, in Africa to take place. And they'll sell it to China. Um, China will sell us solar panels and they'll build some 200 coal-fired energy plants um, it, because they understand that that's a more reliable, cheaper source of, of fuel. So uh, Mr. Epstein, uh, advocates of eliminating fossil fuels claim that the unreliability of solar and wind can be solved through large amounts of batteries. Is this true? No, it's definitely not, not true. And you know, one question to ask is, is this being done anywhere? That is, is there a such thing as a self-sufficient solar system or a self-sufficient wind system? I'm not talking about some random person who's off the grid living on basically nothing, but any kind of industrial place. And the answer is no. Wherever solar and wind are used, they are totally dependent on reliable power plants, usually fossil fuel power plants. And the reason is because batteries are just a super, super expensive way of storing energy. The most efficient way of storing energy is to use energy that's naturally stored. Oil is naturally stored energy. Coal is naturally stored. Natural gas is naturally stored. Nuclear is, even hydro is. Nature brings the water up to the top of the river. And if you're trying to have something where we get unreliable energy from the sun and the wind, and then you need to store days worth of it to somehow deploy, this is a, just a total fantasy that has no basis in reality. I, I recently had, uh, I posted online because Elon Musk had said, oh, all you need to power the whole world is just solar panels and some batteries. And so I ran the numbers on that. And for three days of batteries, which you'd want at least that given, you know, weather variations around the world, but for three days of the world's batteries uh, to support all the world's energy use today, you'd need $400 trillion worth of batteries. And of course, you can only make those with fossil fuels, right? They'd wow. be a lot more expensive if you, so it's just, this is a total, I'd call it a fantasy, but this fantasy is being used to oppress us. We're being told, oh, you don't need to worry about shutting down a pipeline or making drilling illegal or you know, having these, like getting rid of all fossil fuels for electricity by 2035 and all fossil fuels by 2050. You don't need to worry about that because we have this magical world. And this is a complete nightmare world that doesn't work at all, even on a small scale. And yet very smart people are selling this to us, which is leading to disastrous decisions. Yes, wow. I, you know, it, it's, it's incredible um, how you come to this sensible uh, 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 answer just, just by doing the numbers, doing the math and, and following true data. Um, so, so thank you for, for putting in that effort to actually provide um, that information. And, uh, you know, the, the Biden regime, they, they claim that these green jobs will easily replace any oil and gas jobs that are lost. Um, now, I, I want to say I've, I've visited some coal-fired energy plants in my district in Colorado, and uh, I, I've asked, you know, how, how many people are on staff? And there were some 500 employees um, while they're mining for coal and they're 
they're operating the coal-fired energy plant, but they're, they're moving towards uh, solar panels. And uh, I said, how many employees will you have once that transition is complete? Um, and the answer was less than 10. Uh, and, and they'll need um, nearly 10,000 uh, square acres to, to fill uh, um, solar panels. And uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a massive uh, land grab um, that they'll need federal land um, to, to store these solar panels. And their employees will drop from nearly uh, 500 to less than 10. Um, so with, with Biden saying, you know, the green jobs will easily replace any oil and gas jobs that are lost, is this true? I mean, it reminds me of, you know, the John Kerry statement where he's, he was talking about, I think the people fired from Keystone XL or somewhere else. And he said, oh, those people can get jobs making solar panels. So this is very untrue for three uh, basic reasons. So I'll just say them quickly. The first is that solar and wind jobs are far less productive than oil, gas, or coal jobs. The, today's government acts like the way jobs work is the government just decides randomly to give certain amounts of money to certain jobs. But no, the reason jobs pay is because they produce a certain amount. And the, in general, the more value a job produces, the more value the, the person with the job gets, just like you're running a restaurant, right? The more value you produce, the more money you can get. And you take an oil and gas extraction job, that generates an average of $2 million of value per worker. That is a huge amount of value. That's a big part of the reason why it's a, it can be a very high paying profession. With solar and wind, what are you doing? You're generating unreliable electricity that's totally a parasite on reliable electricity, of course that's not going to pay as well. So it's not as productive. The second thing is the process for producing solar and wind is overwhelmingly taking place in China. Whereas you know, with US oil and gas, we have deposits here, we have the expertise of how to get them, et cetera, et cetera. You look at what goes into solar panels and wind turbines. Well, the reason why those work, there are gonna be so few people at that installation is not that solar and wind takes very few jobs, it actually takes way more jobs than oil and gas because it's way less productive. But those jobs are mining jobs in China and other parts of the world, processing jobs, and then manufacturing jobs. And I just wanna like a good point of comparison, I mentioned also in the hearing is Elon Musk's, uh, you know, wild success being very sarcastic uh, in, in Buffalo, his rooftop, you know, his rooftop Tesla solar panel thing, like they got a billion dollars in, you know, tax breaks and subsidies. Plus they got a government preferred electricity price that just ends up punishing everyone else and giving them high prices. And it was to create jobs that ended up costing something like $650,000 or $700,000 a person. And at, last time I checked, they didn't even created that many jobs. So this is welfare work. This is mm -hmm. totally unsustainable. It doesn't work. The key to jobs is to have a free economy where we can do productive things, including with resources that are in America. And then the final thing, and this is the most important thing, is that green jobs actually ruin every job because green jobs are part of a setup where we're outlawing low cost reliable energy and we're mandating high cost unreliable energy. When you have high cost unreliable energy, that doesn't just put fossil fuel workers out of business, it puts workers in every industry that depends on low cost reliable energy, which is every industry. So you look in places like Australia and Europe, you see different businesses fleeing uh, because of the, the rising energy costs. And that's going to get worse and worse. So this green jobs thing is actually a green joblessness policy. Wow, that's a great way to put it. And, and really, it is a, a work to welfare program um, that the government is, um, is putting forward. So now, uh, Mr. Epstein, what are the consequences of anti-oil and gas policies on working families? I mean, you you know this as well as as well as I do. I mean, it's, I mean, what are the consequences of of you have productive work that creates a lot of value in the world? You've devoted your life to learning those specific skills, and it's not that you got out competed by something better, which I'm all in favor of under capitalism. It's that you got prohibited from doing it in the name of something worse that doesn't even work, like this mostly solar and wind system. I mean, that is totally devastating, obviously, financially to the families. It's totally unjust. I think that's the main thing. It's totally unjust to somebody who's really productive to, again, not outcompete them, but forcibly drive them out of work. And what does it do to their ability to support their family? And I really like what the point you made about work to welfare. 
What does it mean when you can no longer do a job that you take pride in? That's devastating. I've done a lot of work with the coal industry and it's so devastating to see what happens to different kinds of families. I don't think it's an accident that you have a lot of opioid abuse that's happened in certain former mining communities. And I just wanna stress, I'm not against people losing jobs if they get out competed. I am against people losing jobs if they're outlawed by the government in favor of things that are worse. Yes, uh, absolutely. And what can America learn from countries like Germany, Denmark, and others that have adopted high percentages of wind and solar energy? Yeah, we can learn a lot. Unfortunately, uh, Representative Huffman was, uh, while he was insulting me, he was he was uh, very highly praising the wonderful experiences in Europe of supposedly cost-effective energy. Well, you know, my main researcher lives in Germany, and that's certainly not his experience in the data or in reality. You know, Germany has some of the highest electricity prices in the world, in the civilized world. Why is that? Because they're progressively restricting fossil fuel use they're outlawing nuclear and they're mandating wind and solar. So they're just over a third wind and solar for electricity. They're actually using huge amounts of burning wood for electricity, which I don't think Huffman knows about or most people know about, but their electricity prices have gone up by a factor of two in the last 20 years. And they're three times higher than ours in the US and ours in the US are way higher than they should be because of wind and solar. Natural gas prices have been plummeting. Natural gas is our leading source of electricity. Why haven't electricity prices gone down? It's because we've added all of these wasteful solar panels, wind turbines, and power lines, these huge power lines for them that don't do any good because you still need the reliable power plants. So the solar and wind, this is the point I, I tried to stress in my testimony and in my, my written testimony in particular, which people can see at energytalkingpoints.com, the costs of solar and wind don't replace the cost of reliable power plants, they add to the cost of reliable power plants. You highlight this very well in your book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, uh, what's, what's really going on in countries like Germany and Denmark. And I think it's a, a great way um, to, to really um, expose um, the, how they have adopted these high percentages of, of wind and solar energy and, and the true effects of it. Now, in your written testimony, uh, you stated a comprehensive analysis of federal subsidies per unit of electricity generated from 2019 to 2010 found that solar got 211 times more subsidies than natural gas and wind got 48 times more subsidies than natural gas. Now, I, I think that this is extremely important because so many people believe that the, uh, the fossil fuel industry um, is extremely uh, subsidized and heavily subsidized and uh, that the uh, the, the green new energy schemes um, don't even compare in, in subsidies. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind uh, breaking that down for us, I think that would be very beneficial. Yeah, one, one fact that should make us very suspicious of any claims that fossil fuels succeed because of subsidies is that fossil fuels are globally dominant. It's not just that they're dominant in Saudi Arabia or Iran or something like that. They're dominant even in places like Japan that have no reserves and no incentive to use them whatsoever. And so this indicates there's something uniquely cost effective about fossil fuels. If you look at the subsidies, I mean, this is just the beginning of the story because oil and gas and coal are punished in many ways and solar and wind are rewarded in many ways. But one of the more obvious is subsidies. So the, what'll happen is they'll sometimes say, oh, solar and wind get less in subsidies than fossil fuels. They at least used to say this. Now, how could they possibly say this? It's because they, they take all the, all the subsidies of solar and wind and they compare them to all the subsidies of fossil fuels, but fossil fuels generate way more energy. So what you have to look at is the per unit subsidies. And if, you, and if you look at the per unit subsidies, you get the kind of statistics that I shared. It's always dozens of times more subsidies uh, for solar and wind. I mean, if you don't take the per unit subsidies, it's like if I said, hey, you know what, uh, Representative Gobert, I just discovered that in fact, uh, Nordstrom is cheaper than Walmart because Nordstrom has less revenue than Walmart. But you're like, no, the item of clothing at Walmart is cheaper. So it's just a total, it's a total fallacy. And there are many more things. So just one I would like to highlight. Well, there's, first of all, there's mandates. So they're saying no matter what it costs, you have to use it. And one that I've really highlighted in light of the disaster in Texas is this crazy policy where grids pay the same amount or sometimes more for unreliable electricity as reliable electricity. I and mean, this is crazy. You know, you've run a restaurant. Imagine that there's somebody who comes in every day for five years without fail 
And then there's somebody who comes in a third of the time and you don't know when they're gonna show up and you pay them the same wage. It makes no sense. That's not the same service. So unreliable electricity is not a valuable service in most cases. And yet the way our whole infrastructure is set up, we're paying the same for what I call reliables and unreliable. So these, these things, I've, I've talked in the background to different kinds of CEOs of uh, you know, electricity companies. And when I, whenever I've asked, hey, if there were no subsidies and mandates for solar and wind, how much would you use? Nobody has ever given me much of a figure above zero. Right, <laughs> yes, that, that's great. Uh, House Democrats, we, we know that they want to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies, um, but want to extend these wind and solar subsidies for another 10 years. Uh, you know, they weren't supposed to last as long as they have, and now they want to extend them uh, even further. Uh, this is after they were already extended um, for nearly a decade longer than the renewable industry initially requested. Uh, and, and so I think this is uh, the direction we're going here. But Mr. Epstein is, is picking winners and losers and spending hundreds of billions of dollars propping up renewables a winning energy strategy for America? I mean, it's so, th th there's a question of what are we trying to accomplish? Because very clearly, right, we're driving a lot of productive people out of work. We're ruining our economy. I mean, if I'm right that the cost of energy determines the cost of everything and the cost of energy for industry determines how competitive industry is, like if I'm right about that and we're making our energy more expensive and less reliable. And we're just at the beginning of that, by the way, where I live in California with blackouts with Texas, we saw what happened when they spent $66 billion on wind and solar and transmission lines, instead of spending money on enough reliable power plants and enough on weatherization measures to keep everything resilient. Like we see, we're already seeing what happens and what costs those. So there's a question of why on earth are we doing this? And you know, the reason is, what they'll say, climate change, like climate change is an existential threat. That's why in my testimony, I address this idea. And there's a huge distinction between climate change and climate crisis. I do believe that we impact the climate, but if we look at it, we have a fairly minor impact. And because human beings are so good at adaptation or what I call mastery, we're safer from climate than ever. So if you took somebody in the US a uh, hundred years ago versus today, they were, or in the world actually, a hundred years ago versus today, they were 50 times more likely to die from a climate related disaster than somebody today. So how can you be 50 times safer and have a crisis? That doesn't make sense at all. That's like saying we have a polio crisis today, right? It's much less of a problem than it used to be. And so I think it's really important to recognize that, okay, there's some legitimacy with being concerned about lowering emissions. I don't think it should have anywhere near the priority it does. And I, I question whether it's necessary at all. But if you care about that, you have to recognize this should absolutely be a secondary policy compared to, if you're talking globally, globally empowering the world, making sure billions of people have energy. That's much more of a determinant of quality of life than the precise level of CO2 in the atmosphere. And if you care about that, then you should be in favor of decriminalizing nuclear. And one point I got at briefly, but didn't talk about enough, is that nuclear has been demonized and criminalized in the US and around the world. And if you wanted to take one policy, you mentioned the, the wind production tax credit and the solar investment tax credit, extending those for 10 years those are one of the main reasons why we're driving nuclear plants out of business. What source of energy is the most promising in terms of low cost, globally scalable, reliable energy that's non-carbon? It's nuclear. What source of energy is being shut down the most in the US this year? It's not even coal, it's nuclear because we have anti-nuclear policies. This idea that we're gonna destroy America and we're gonna have China sell us a bunch of crappy energy made using fossil fuels. And this is somehow, and we're gonna shut down nuclear plants. And this is because we care about CO2 emissions. This is not a sincere way of thinking. And that's why I was a little disappointed that none of the representatives who kind of came in critically asked me any questions or even engaged uh, my arguments at all. They just like, you know, one person just made up some insults and then the rest ignored this and just said, oh yeah, we gotta get off uh, fossil fuels, but no, really we don't. We need to keep the freedom to use all forms of energy. Mm -hmm. And that's really the key to a better America and a better world. Yes, well, it sounds like um, you interacted with Congress. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like a, a great summary there. Um, but but really this is what the argument has been um, in, in, in everything. It's just very disingenuous. Um, you, you wanna they wanna complain about CO2 emissions, but not 
uh, look at uranium usage. Uh, we, we don't want to explore nuclear, which we know is the cleanest, most efficient form of energy. Uh, and, and we could produce that right here in America. Uh, but you know, these are not in my backyard extremists that would rather um, outsource to, to China and Africa and, uh, and rely on Russia and Saudi Arabia uh, for, for oil. And so this is, this is just a very common theme that we see. Um, we, we hardly discuss hydroelectricity. Um, they, they barely also opposed, to... also opposed by the modern environmental movement. Interestingly, it, exactly. though, it's, hydro. It, it's very difficult to even get it classified as a renewable energy. Right. Uh, and, uh, so, but this, this is how, um, how, how all of this works. It, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very partisan agenda and uh, they, they have their narrative and they're running with it. Um, even on the House floor, it's hard to get a Republican bill to the floor uh, to, to discuss um, and, and debate um, Republican ideals. Uh, Congressman Chip Roy and I, we have a discharge petition to force my bill to the floor for a vote. We have to, we have to come up with tactics just to get a bill to the floor. And so um, my, my bill is HR 859 and it's the Protecting American Energy Jobs Act. And this bill simply nullifies Biden's job-killing climate executive orders. It overturns the energy leasing ban on federal lands and nullifies the revocation, uh, revocation of uh, the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and so this is, this is a tactic that we have to use just to simply get a debate and a vote to, to represent uh, the people who sent us here and, and, uh, and to advocate for American energy. And uh, so the, we see this on a regular basis, um, how um, nothing really lines up with, with truly reducing CO2 emissions or coming with, up with a sensible solution. And, and mentioning CO2 emissions, um, let's talk about forest mitigation. Um, we, we, have, we have wildfires um, that release uh, far more carbon emissions uh, than, than all of the vehicles that we have um, in, in the United States and, and beyond. Last year in Colorado alone, we had the three largest wildfires um, that we've ever seen. And, uh, and this is because we can't even manage our forests. Uh, we aren't able to go in there and put chainsaw to tree and, and manage the dead standing timber. We have more than 6 billion dead standing trees in the Western United States alone. And we're just creating a huge tinderbox. And since um, Democrats won't allow us to manage our forests, well, mother nature is going to manage it for us and do so with wildfires. Um, and so the CO2 emissions that are released from just that, um, you know, that should be a priority if, if that's what we're truly concerned well, with. Well, the people being killed by, I mean, it's, it's I, I totally agree. That's a huge issue. And I mentioned, like, I think this is literally true. The California forests managed by the federal government and Gavin Newsom are the biggest environmental hazard in the United States. Can you imagine if there was a company or private property owner who did the amount of pollution and property and life damage that the California mismanaged forests do? And they act like, oh, it's climate change. There's nothing we can do besides promise to outlaw cars. And like, what are you talking about? We know how to manage forests. You clear debris, you yeah. do logging, you build barriers. We're human beings. We know how to prevent out of control wildfires. And yet they're, they're, they're making us more primitive in our wildfire management than primitive people were 200, 300 years ago, because they know full well, at least you got to do a controlled burn. You can't just let everything accumulate forever and then blame it on climate change or drought. Like California, we've had 200 year long droughts in the past. What We're just going to hope that magically, if we use a bunch of Chinese solar panels and wind turbines, nature is going to be nice to us. <laughs> and then we don't have to worry about wildfires. I mean, this is a this is why this guy should definitely be recalled. And I hope there's somebody good to replace him. I just rant it because I'm from California. Yes, no, I, I hope you get someone good to replace him as well. Uh, you know, I, I recently heard comments from the energy secretary as well, uh, you know, with, with the fuel shortage that we're seeing um, after one of the, the pipelines where it was hacked. And then of course, just all of the, the rising prices and all of this, and uh, just that, that disastrous week we had with, uh, with just long lines um, at the fuel pump. She said, you know, you wouldn't be experiencing these issues if you had an electric car. Uh, you wouldn't be affected by the gas shortage if you just had an electric car. Uh, but these folks um, fail to address uh, where the energy comes to actually charge those electric cars. You know, there's um, stickers on a lot of uh, the appliances that we buy. And they say, if you purchase this item on this date, this is how much energy you will save over the course of this item's lifespan. Well, what they fail to mention is the energy it took to create that item before you purchased it. And, uh, and so all of this is just incomplete data um, for a party that says that they uh, believe in science and follow science. 
uh, their, their actions don't really line up to that. Yeah, I mean, the way I think of it, so my background is as is in philosophy. So I think of it as really what is believed in as a primitive religion. And the, the core of the religion is that it's bad for human beings to impact nature. That's really the, the what, what is called environmentalism today is really an anti-human impact movement. And it basically says anything human beings do to the planet is immoral and it's inevitably self-destructive. The planet was perfect without us. And so anything we do, mother nature is gonna ruin us. And so anything bad that happens, like if somebody dies from a storm or wildfire goes out of control, they're like, oh, it was our fault. We should do even less. And it's just a totally bizarre view. I mean, it was, it was understandable people had this view of the world thousands of years ago when they didn't understand science. But once you understand science and technology and industry, you realize that human beings can master nature. That's what we, that we, have, we have minds and we have energy and we have machines and we can make life better. But to do that, we need low cost, reliable energy and billions of people need it. Uh, the people who have it need to keep it and the people who don't have it need it. And I really wanted to just drill home today that we're in an energy starved world. We need more energy. We need fossil fuels to get it. And nobody's paying any attention to this because they're obsessed with you know X number of molecules of CO2 in the atmosphere. And that's not a scientific or pro-human obsession. That's a primitive religious and anti-human obsession. Yes, that, that's a great point. Uh, well, Mr. Epstein, I, I want to say thank you so much. And I, I absolutely love your book. I hope mo more people um, read your book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Uh, visit your website, uh, energytalkingpoints.com. Right? Do I have that right? Because usually I just- Great. Thank you. And thank okay. you for mentioning <laughs> it in Congress today. That was, that was great. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming into our subcommittee hearing on uh, oversight and investigations and and just imparting your wisdom and um, showing showing these folks what real common sense is and uh, and that we actually can accomplish um, energy uh, a dominance right here in America and and do so um, in, a, in just a, a really um, whole and complete way and take care of the earth while we're doing it. So thank you so much. I appreciate you and I hope to do this again soon.